chapter 11. While you are turning to Genesis chapter 11, let's bow our hearts in prayer and ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word and our time together as we study. Lord, thank you for this time together to look into your word and we pray, God, that we would learn something in here today, something about your love for us and something that would encourage us along the way and that would draw us closer to you. So Lord, may your word have its desired purpose this morning in our lives as we consider it together. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 11, we are going to read down to verse nine, although we are going to consider the whole chapter this morning. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and there they dwelt. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and bake them uh, thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that will, uh, they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Lord, thank you again, and as we study it, Lord, would you just uh, teach us something this morning that we need to know about following you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, studied last week, uh, Genesis chapter 10, of course, it was kind of a challenging study going through that genealogy, but that is called the Table of the Nations. And the importance of that, as we tried to point out last week, is how God, through Noah and his uh, descendants, his three sons and, and their wives and families, was uh, then repatriating the earth. And we know that um, the Lord had uh, told them, just as he gave uh, Adam and Eve the command at the beginning, to go forth and to uh, subdue the earth, to fill, to multiply. And then uh, coming out of the ark, he had told them to go and basically to scatter and to go all over the face of the earth. Now it's interesting, as we uh, read these two chapters, when you read them together, chapters 10 and chapter 11, uh, it, it a little bit seems like they're out of place, meaning like chapter 11 probably should have come before chapter 10. And indeed, uh, most of the scholars agree that this is not in chronological order, that this is in sort of literary order. And so the, the Lord's desire, his heart was that the peoples would be scattered and go into their people groups and fill the earth and subdue it. But now when we come to the Tower of Babel, we see where man uh, disobeyed the word of the Lord and began to do something that God had not told them to do, which was to gather together in one place, which was what the Tower of Babel in some respects is about. And they were disobeying the word of the Lord where God had said, I want you to scatter in people groups and go over the face of the earth. So as we went through that list of peoples last week and we talked about where they went and uh, you know, what areas of the world that they populated, um, we saw that they, um, you know, they each had a purpose. They had sort of a, a place to go. And just like when God sends the, uh, the children of Israel into the land um, of Canaan, he gave them sort of each a place. He had cordoned off sort of a section. You guys go over here and take that section. You take this section. Uh, because the Lord knows that uh, people needed boundaries, they needed space, and God had a plan for how the earth should be populated. 
and how the uh, nations of the earth should be filled. But we find here in chapter 11 that man is sort of taking a, a stab at doing it his own way. So as we come to this place uh, in Genesis chapter 11, we are now four generations removed from Noah and his family. And we are now at a place where uh, man, and we've seen this over and over, haven't we, where man begins to do things his own way, where uh, he's no longer listening to the voice of the Lord. Uh, we also come to a very significant place in chapter 11 because chapter 11 is a dividing point in the book of Genesis. And from this uh, place forward, we are gonna talk for like uh, 15 chapters about the life of Abraham and his family. So in these first 11 chapters, we have the creation of the universe, we have the fall of man, we have the flood, where God has brought judgment on the sin of mankind, and then the attempted construction of the Tower of Babel, which we will talk about this morning. So in Genesis 11:1, 1, it says, the whole earth had one language and one speech. So I don't know about you, but if you, just try to think for a moment. If the entire earth had one language, what would life be like? You know, today when we travel, if any of you have ever traveled internationally and you only speak one language, English, or maybe you speak another language, Spanish or French or something like that, but you go to other parts of the world and you don't speak the language, there's a little bit of apprehension and fear and we, we arrogant Americans tend to think uh, everybody wants to speak English, right? So wherever I go, I should be able to communicate. And, and thankfully, many, many people, many countries do indeed speak some form of English. But I don't know if you've ever been to a place where they don't speak English. The ability to communicate is incredibly difficult. And then we resort to sort of prehistoric methods of pointing and grunting and repeating the same words and phrases over and over, hoping that they will magically understand what we're trying to say to them. And of course, it just doesn't work that way. But we were at a place in history where, where the whole earth had only one language and one speech. Most scholars believe, although there is no proof, that this one language was indeed Hebrew. And part of the reason for that is the way that these um, records were chronicled and passed along you know, through history. So the earth had one language and it came to pass in verse two, as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there, <clears throat> and they dwelt there, excuse me. <clears throat> now Shinar is the region of ancient Mesopotamia, uh, which is where Babylon was founded. And we know that to be modern day Iraq if we uh, get out our maps and we look at these things. And of course we believe that modern day Baghdad is the general area where Babylon was founded. So they uh, said to one another, come let us take bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. Now it's interesting, if you take this phrase here about journeying from the east or to the east, you'll find this phrase so often through the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis. And the interesting thing is, every time you see that phrase where the people of God went east, it indicates that they were departing from God, that they were walking away from God, that they were traveling from God. So it's just a little interesting note to uh, point out there as you read through the scriptures, especially in the book of Genesis, to make that observation. Verse three here, where it said, they said to one another, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly, and they had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. It's interesting, uh, John Rockefeller many years ago in reading this portion of the scriptures uh, saw this phrase here about the asphalt for mortar and sort of concluded that there must be oil in that region of the world and that this is ultimately what led him to go to the Middle East and to begin explorations for oil and what made him a billionaire many times over was actually this verse of scripture, believe it or not, little historical fact for you. Uh, has no meaning to our life, but little interesting point. So this point where they said, let us make bricks and bake them as opposed to stone. 
you see the common construction method and we know from you know certainly looking at the pyramids and certainly the temple and the, the western wall in Jerusalem uh, people would take stones and cut them very precisely and fit them together and there was no need for mortar but here whenever you see people are, are making bricks now you see the effort of man you see mankind fabricating something and trying to come up with a way of doing something trying to invent and be creative certainly there's no harm in that but in this case it represented rebellion against God and so when they said let us make these bricks and bake them and they uh, they had asphalt for mortar uh, they began to put them together in such a way that they were um, you know not doing what God said as we pointed out earlier God had told them to scatter and to go throughout the whole earth and here they have determined um, through the leadership of Nimrod whom we encountered in the last uh, chapter that he wanted them to come together he had some kind of an influence and power and authority that he wielded over people now as we think about this situation where God had instructed them to go and to scatter but they didn't it sort of reminds me of sometimes when we are making plans in life uh, the question becomes how do we know what God's will is how do we know what God wants us to do when we make a move when we make a job move when we make a move physically where we sell and buy homes or where we move to a different state or even a different country and it's important always of course to submit our plans to the Lord and to ask him what he wants and to ask him to speak to us and ask him to lead us and to guide us in James chapter 4 James spoke to this very issue where he said come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city spend a year there buy and sell and make a profit whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow for what is your life it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we shall live and do this or that but now you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil and that's what these people did in this situation God had commanded them where they should go by their people groups but they had chosen to follow Nimrod they had chosen to stay in this place they had chosen to make bricks and ultimately they are going to build a city and a tower as we find in verse 4 they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth it's interesting here how they said let us make a name for ourselves it makes you wonder when I don't know if you've ever thought about that or maybe you've even said words like that but here these people said let us make a name for ourselves what was behind that and what was behind that was arrogance what was behind that was pride they wanted to make a name for themselves they wanted to be remembered as a people who had done great things and in some respects perhaps they wanted their names to be recorded in the annals of history let me take a moment and say this about that I wonder what we think uh, about our lives you know often we consider things like what is the meaning of life what should I do with my life uh, if you've ever re written any uh, excuse me read any management books often they will say things like um, consider you know go go all the way to the end of your life if you can visualize these things and think about what do you want to be said at your funeral how do you want to be remembered now we may think of that and say well that's kind of a morbid thought but the point of that visualization process they tell you is that helps you kind of set your mind on the goal and think about the things that are the most important now with respect to the scriptures and with respect to how God wants to speak into our lives through his word what is it that really matters what do the scriptures tell us that really matter and isn't it indeed to follow the Lord isn't it to be faithful and true to him isn't it to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ 
Isn't it to be conformed to the image of Christ? When we read through Paul's writings, when we read through Jesus' writings, you remember that uh, John the baptizer said, um, I must decrease and he must increase. We find Paul say uh, things like, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We find Paul writing in 2 Corinthians, telling the Corinthian church that he just, if anything, he wanted to be known for how he suffered and the example that he left. Not uh, for the name of the Apostle Paul, but for the example that he left behind and how he followed the Lord. So you see for us, as believers in Christ, as New Testament Christians, I would say it this way for myself, and I, I think this is biblical, hopefully for all of us, which is this. What do you want to be known for? Hopefully we want to be known for our passion for Christ, for our living for the gospel, for our living for the things that God says are truly important. He says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things, Jesus said, hang all of the law and the prophets. You see, these people wanted to make a name for themselves. The name we make for ourselves is that one day in heaven we're told we're going to be given a new name by the very Lord himself when we meet him. That's the name that we want. You see, we wanna persevere, we wanna to endure to the end. We want the name that we're known for to be the name of Christ. That's why I shared this scripture at the beginning for us as fathers, to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to keep the faith. There are so many people today, uh, Christian artists, we know we heard about another one recently who has renounced the faith, who said, you know, I, I don't think I believe in Christ anymore. It's a long haul, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And the journey, the goal, is to fall down before the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ as we cross the finish line and we enter heaven to be in his presence. These people wanted to build a city for themselves, a tower whose top is in the heavens, and they wanted to make a name for their, themselves. And it said, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You see, that's where they were saying they were resisting what God had told them to do. So this was really active rebellion against the thing that God had told them to do. And we're told in verse five that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. So once again, we see here an anthropomorphism where, where God is expressing to us so we can understand it. You know, it's like God says, okay, we need to go down and see what's happening. You know, I left the kids alone for a few minutes. I took my eyes off of them and they're getting out of control again. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Let me share this with you. God had commanded the people to be fruitful and multiply to scatter across the earth, but they decided to move to Nimrod's city of Babylon and to settle there. This move was blatant rebellion against God's command that the people scatter, and apparently Nimrod wanted them in his cities and under his control. The tower that they built at Babel was uh, what is known as a ziggurat, <clears throat> and archeologists have excavated several of these large structures which were built primarily for religious purposes. A ziggurat was like a pyramid except that the successive levels were recessed so that you could walk up to the top on the steps. Uh, at the top was a special shrine dedicated to a god or a goddess. And in the building of the structure, the people weren't trying to climb up to heaven to dethrone God. Rather, they hoped that the God or the goddess they worshiped would come down from heaven to meet them there at that structure that they had constructed. And the structure and the city um, were called, in this case, Babel, which means the gate of the gods. And you see, this was their attempt to not only reach God, their gods or to have God or their gods come down to them. And we know from history that Babel, that Babylon, became the place where all false religions centered and emanated from. We can trace all false religions back to Babel. And if we think about what happened at Babel, they... Uh, 
tried to reach God in their own way. They redefined who God was. And all of the, the religions, the mystery religions that have come out of Babel have ended up leading people astray. They've given us uh, philosophies and thinking in the world, things like you can be your own God, you can create your own God, uh, you can fashion your own God, whatever kind of idol you want. However you want to worship is up to you. Whatever you want to worship is up to you. And the Lord said, verse six, indeed the peoples are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do. So God is saying you had a gift, you have something I've given you, you have a responsibility, you have authority. Remember the Lord said, <clears throat> be fruitful and multiply. God gave them commands, he gave them authority, he gave them responsibility, but he says this is what they begin to do. They begin to create a false system of worship. <clears throat> now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. In other words, because of their ability to communicate in one language, and to in a sense they began to think they could just do whatever they wanted whenever they wanted does any of this sound familiar to today to do what you want when you want how you want and God says nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them I don't know how familiar you are with uh, all of the latest apps coming out on your phone but are you familiar with the app called Babel which is a translation app Hmm, I wonder why they named it that. Where did they get these things from? The book of Proverbs says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Jesus said, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, that's God's way. And God saw their pride, he saw their arrogance, and he saw the intent of their heart. And so in verse seven, it says, come, let us go down. Now you see the same language used several times already in the book of Genesis where, where God says, come, you know, let us make man in our own image. And this is again, God speaking out of the triunity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Come let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. You see, if they had obeyed the Lord and scattered as God had commanded, perhaps we wouldn't have had the scattering of languages, the, the creation of languages, the confusion of communication. But because of man's rebellion and man's hardness of heart and man's arrogance and pride, we have here what you might call a microcosm of judgment, where God has looked down upon them and said, okay, this is not good that man can communicate in this way and just continue down this path of doing whatever they want to do. So we must confuse their language and scatter them. So God confuses their language and then forces them to do by his hand what they should have done willingly. And what they should have done willingly was to do what the Lord had commanded. But now God makes it a little bit harder. You see, God is at work in the world and is accomplishing his purposes in spite of the plans and the projects of sinful people. I find great comfort in that because I, the news is driving me absolutely nuts right now with everything that is happening in our world, both in our, in our country as well as globally. That's not because things aren't happening the way I want them to happen. It's because I see the unrighteousness, I see where we are headed and it makes me think that very much <clears throat> we are living in a time like this, although we don't have a Tower of Babel today uh, in that sense. Certainly we as mankind, our society, is headed in this direction. I think things are being set up. The chess pieces are put in, being put in place for the time of the end, for the tribulation. And so these very things are happening today that God is dealing with here. You see, God in heaven is never perplexed or paralyzed by what people do on earth. We need to remind ourselves of that. Babel's conceited, let us go up, was answered by heaven's calm, let us go down. 
He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, Psalm 2 tells you and me. Of course, God doesn't have to investigate to know what's going on in his universe. The language is only used to dramatize God's intervention. As with Adam and Eve in the garden, God's judgment at Babel not only dealt with the immediate sins, but also helped to prevent future problems. You see, we don't see from God's perspective, do we? You know, if you're, if you're a parent and you have children, sometimes we can see things. We can see the temperament of a child. We can see the direction they're heading. Or maybe if we get to know someone and we, we form close personal relationships, sometimes we can see people go off track and start to head astray and we can see where they're headed and the end and we wanna warn them. But you see, our vision, our scope is so limited, but God sees the entire planet he sees every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every situation. And God is in charge of these things. God knows about these things. And God does things to deal with immediate sins, but he also, again, orchestrates chess pieces to prevent future problems. You see, sometimes we question God, don't we, when we see him do things or when we we are praying, for example, and then the answers don't come. And you know, God always answers prayer. It's usually yes, no, or maybe. And we don't like the no, and we don't like the maybe. We just want the yeses. But remember, Father knows best. So the Lord scattered them, verse 8, abroad, from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. God had to intervene in the sinful actions of mankind yet again, confuse their language, scatter them abroad over the face of the earth, forcing them to do what he had commanded them to do. If they had done what he commanded them to do in free will and obedience, perhaps this would not have been necessary. Now, isn't this a principle of life? That if we will obey the Lord and do what he says, don't the scriptures say there would be blessing? Don't the scriptures say that if we follow the Lord and we willingly obey him, that there would be good in the future for us? But when we kick against the goads, when we press against the Lord, when we don't do what he says, in fact, when we do the opposite of what he says, you see, uh, disobedience can be active and it can be passive. You know, we have this, this term we use today, passive aggressive, right? Where somebody's like, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just gonna sit here. I'm just not going to even dignify that with a response. And the Lord looks at these things. He sees the intent of the heart. And the Lord said, I have to force them to do what they should have done. So he scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. I imagine along the way there, there probably was communication from the Lord where he said, stop building that city but they didn't listen. Therefore, verse nine, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Interestingly, the word Babel sounds like the Hebrew word Babel, uh, Belal, excuse me, which means confusion. Because of God's judgment, the gate of the gods became the door to confusion. Instead of making a name for themselves, God gave the project a new name. Now it's interesting if we can think ahead for a moment to the New Testament on the day of Pentecost. What happened on that day? The disciples were gathered in the upper room. They were waiting on the Lord just as Jesus had commanded them. And in that moment as the Holy Spirit fell upon them as a mighty rushing wind and we know on the day of Pentecost that uh, there were people from many, many places, many languages there. And what happened is the, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and as they stood up and it said what people heard were the glorious praises of God in their own language. You see, the day of Pentecost was like a reverse babble. You see, the coming of the Holy Spirit was God saying, there is one day coming when once again everyone will speak the same language and it will be in heaven, of course, when we all get before the throne of God. But God gave us a little foretaste 
on that day as the Holy Spirit came and God took languages that were unknown to the, the speaker and through the power of the Holy Spirit allowed them to, to preach the wonderful good news of God, his praise and his excellencies in a language to the people who needed to hear it. And you see, God confused the languages and God's the only one who can, can give uh, something like that to people to make it so that the, the Lord can use you and me even in a situation where we don't know a language and we're speaking to someone and in that moment maybe come upon us and give us the ability to speak in such a way that that person can hear the word of God. You see, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, and remember Paul here in this passage of Scripture was dealing with the confusion that existed in the church because the church had confused the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they, they, were, they had people standing up and speaking in the service multiple times, multiple people, and it was just a chaotic thing. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not the author of confusion. And you say, but God authored confusion there at Babel. Yes, he did, because it served his purposes. But God is not the author of confusion in the church. God's desire is not to bring confusion to people. His desire is to bring light, to bring hope, to bring life. But God, in the situation of Babel, had to do that to force man to obey. In Zephaniah 3.9, we find this thing written where it says for then this is the Lord speaking I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord you see through the gospel there is a common language there is a pure language and that language is love that language is salvation and the Lord is extending right now in this age of grace the gospel to go around the world to speak in one language one pure way to let people know that they need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ each person must make a choice and will that will each person in their choice identify with Babylon or identify with the Lord now we come to a place as we consider this next section, we see here another genealogy and you can see the title there is probably in your Bible listed as Shem's descendants. Uh, so we're not going to read through all of that this morning, but as we come to the end of that section, which goes um, from, if I can get this to work here, from verse 10 all the way down to verse 26, you see the genealogy leads us down to Terah, who was the father of Abram, and Nahor, and Haran. So now we find God taking us through this journey all the way down to the time of Abram. So Genesis gives us two genealogies of Shem back in chapter 10 and verses 21 through 29, and then here in chapter 11, verses 10 through 26. The first genealogy listed all five of the sons of Shem, and five of his grandsons, but then it focuses on the descendants of Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, and Eber's two sons, Peleg and Joktan. It lists Joktan's many sons, but it ignores Peleg's descendants. But the genealogy in chapter 11 picks up Peleg's side of the family and takes us through to Abraham. The genealogy in Genesis 5 takes us from Adam to Noah, and the one in Genesis 11 goes from Noah's son Shem to Terah and his son Abraham. In other words, the scriptures are looking for the path down to the Messiah. So it's not saying the other names are unimportant, but uh, you know, of all of the people who were living in that time, you know, it, it focused on some of the people, like it gave a person and then maybe their, their uh, immediate descendants, but then it kind of moved off to other things. And it keeps following all the way down to the time of the Messiah. So now here we are looking from Noah to Shem to Terah and now to Abraham. So in verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So these are the three brothers. And Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
So this is where we learn about Lot. Uh, Lot was born to Abraham's brother. He was his nephew, but his father Haran died early. And so it would seem, as any good family uh, would do, when someone dies and then someone else needs to sort of pick up the mantle and, and help, that um, Terah and Abram uh, picked up the mantle for taking care of Lot and, and just overseeing his life. So we see that uh, another thing that's happened here in these last couple of chapters is we went from people living eight, nine hundred years. Noah, of course, lived nine hundred and fifty years. And now we're seeing that Nahor comes down to much less. And so God is now reducing the lifespan of mankind. And it's interesting as we read these genealogies, and the thing to remember here is that this records the faithfulness of God in watching over his people and fulfilling his promises. You see, what to us is only a list of names was to God a bridge from the appointment of Shem to the call of Abram. God has designed to use people to help accomplish his will on earth, and people are fragile and not always obedient. But the bridge was built and the covenant promises were sustained because God desires to use people. I think another thing we can glean from reading these genealogies is that God desires to use us. I don't know about you, I only know a little bit about my family tree, but there were people in my family tree who were faithful, and there were people in my family tree who were unfaithful. And I know many people, as they've gone to look back into their family tree, thinking that, you know, perhaps today in their immediate family, they look around and they say, you know, I, I'm the only believer, I'm the only Christian. But then when they start to look, they find out they had a grandmother or a grandfather or a great-grandmother or a grandfather who was a believer and who apparently prayed. And so don't underestimate the value and the importance of who you are and where you are in time and space today. You see, whether your family is filled with believers or maybe there's only a few, God can and will use your faithfulness and use your prayers to affect the lives of those people in your family, whether it be nieces and nephews, or granddaughters and grandsons, or great-grandchildren that are yet to be. You see, before we dismiss the genealogies, let's let them speak to us about the importance of the fact that God is in control of human destiny. And we see here in Genesis 11:29, then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And it's interesting as we consider Abram and Abraham, a little bit later his name will be changed from Abram to Abraham, but the name Abram means exalted father. And when God changes his name, the name Abraham means father of many nations, which is consistent with the promise that he gave him. So even in the name Abram is sort of a prophetic significance that he would be the father of many and that he would have great significance in the kingdom of God. In verse 30, but Sarai was barren and she had no child. So here God is setting up for us the understanding that there is an impossible situation here before us. Sarai, for whatever reason, was unable to have children. She was barren. And this is a very significant fact to us going forward because God's going to make a promise to Abram and he's gonna tell him, I will make you the father of many nations. And Abram and Sarah will later, as we get into this, look at God and say, okay, God, how are you going to do that? And we'll see how that plays out as we get into the story a little bit more. But this is an important detail for us because this is the, the humanity of the situation. And Terah, verse 31, took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and the son of Haran uh, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, uh, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. So we know from Acts chapter 7, and I'd like to read this to you, something significant happened to Abram in his life while he was with his father here in Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Here it is in Acts chapter 7. This is Stephen's address. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. While Abram was there in this place is where God spoke to him and gave him that original word to get out of your country and from your relatives. But we're going to find out that Abram had to patiently wait. We're also going to find out that Abraham, now pay attention here because this may be of significance to you, or Abram, excuse me, he hasn't changed his name yet. Abram's father was actually a pagan worshiper. Joshua 24, 2 tells us this. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. So it's interesting, Abram, brought up in a, in a non-godly home, in an unbiblical situation, being brought up in a time where his father was worshiping idols, no doubt the paganism that came out of the time of Babylon and um, Nimrod and all of that, and he, he was an idolater. And yet here's God speaking to Abram, saying, I've got things for you, I've got promises for you, I've got work for you to do. And how did he deal with that? You see, we're, we're told some of it, but not, we're not told the whole story about how did Abram deal with that, the call of God coming to his life while he was living in a pagan situation, in a pagan home. And so these are things for us to consider as we go forward in the story of Abraham, that God can speak to a person and can orchestrate their life and begin to set their life on a course that only God has for us. So the days of Terah, verse 32, were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. You see, if Genesis 1.11 is a record of four key events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the judgment at Babel, then Genesis 12 through 50 is the record of the lives of four key men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You see, the rest of the book is going to talk about these four men and their lives and how God spoke to them and, and their escapades. And so as we uh, continue to read through this, we're going to find out uh, some amazing things about the life of these four men, and I'm so looking forward to it. But one thing I want you to know as we've considered today, we see two important things here. We see in Babylon a willfulness. That is a willfulness, willfulness to rebel. And we see in Abram a willingness. And we're just beginning to get into his life, and we certainly know the story, but we'll get into it, that Abram was willing to hear the voice of God and was willing to obey. And I love that we see the faithfulness of these people. Remember in Adam's line, remember originally Cain and Abel, there was a problem there, and then God had to bring Seth, and then through Seth, uh, God brought a godly lineage all the way down to Noah. Remember when we read about Noah, Noah uh, had a heart before God. God looked at him and he said, this is a faithful man, this is a righteous man, and God chose Noah and his family to be the ones through whom God would do something incredibly significant. And now as we see all the way down through the line of Shem to Abram, now we're coming to the next person, and so as we see the book of Genesis and we see these people on whom the Spirit of God rests and to whom God speaks, notice their response when God speaks to them. There are those to whom God speaks and they rebel and they don't listen to the, the voice of the Lord, but then there are those who do. And remember, we want to be like those who listen to the voice of the Lord. Babylon eventually became a great city and a great empire 
In 606 to 586 BC, the Babylonian armies attacked and captured the kingdom of Judah, burned the temple and the city of Jerusalem and took thousands of Jews captive to Babylon for 70 years. God used the cruel and idolatrous Babylonians to chasten his own disobedient people. But in scripture, Babylon symbolizes worldly pride, moral corruption, and defiance against God. The biblical contrast is between the earthly city of Babylon that rebels against God and the heavenly city of Jerusalem that brings glory to God. So we want to remember that Babylon in the book of Revelation represents the world system that stands against Jesus Christ and hates him. But the, the heavenly Jerusalem is the place where God will restore all things and bring it back together. In fact, if you go to the book of Revelation and you just read about Babylon, we're gonna find out in Revelation 14 and 16 and 17 and 18 that God spoke over and over and over about Babylon, calling Babylon a fallen great city, calling Babylon a harlot, calling Babylon the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And he looks at Babylon, he goes all the way back to the time of the Tower of Babel and Nimrod, and he points to that time and he says, this is where all sorts of evil began. And so we want to avoid anything that came out of Babylon, anything that represents a rebellion against God. And you know, this is what sin does to us, isn't it? Sin causes us to rebel. The father of sin, Satan, said all the way back in uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 where we find recorded for us <clears throat> his rebellion against God. It was all I, 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 me, me, me. And we have to guard against that in our own hearts as believers. That the willfulness of self does not take precedent over the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. You see, God has called us to love people. God has called us to serve people. God has called us to look to him and one day our name will be the, you know, derived from the name of Christ. Paul says, uh, you know, in Ephesians, he says something like the name under which every uh, family in heaven and earth derives its name. It's from the Lord Jesus Christ and so we wanna be known by our behavior, by our spirit-filled behavior. We wanna be known by the fruit of the spirit not by, our willfulness, not by our willfulness, not by our anger, not by our strongly biased, opinionated views on things in life. Nobody cares what we think about politics. It's not gonna matter. What's gonna matter is, did we leave something of Christ behind? Did we leave something of Jesus? You see, yes, there's things happening in the world today. There always are. Today is just a different chapter. But what are we leaving behind? What is, what is the mark that we're leaving on society? Is it what political party we're for or is it the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it the gospel? That's what we're to be marked by. So I pray that God would give us wisdom as we continue to go through these times and we begin to look at the life of Abraham. <clears throat> and we, of course, Abraham, if you've read the story, you know that he, he has some issues. He makes some bad choices, but God still loves him. God still works with him. God still calls him back. And we find this through, throughout the life of all of the people of God, people whom God says he loves and that his hand is upon and through whom he did great things. They, they still had a lot of problems. They still had a lot of failures. They still had moments where sin prevailed and the grace of God faded. But God looked at them, especially when you go to the book of Hebrews, the chapter 11, and we read how God's favor looked upon people, and you're like, man, you're, God, that person made it into faith's hall of fame, and I think about what they did, and all of the bad, and the, the things that they did that were just horrible, and you look at them and you say, they're an example of faith. You see, God looks at things differently than we look at them, doesn't he? He sees faith. He sees the heart. You and I tend to look at the negative, we tend to see the sin. God sees the grace. 
How could God say of David, a man after my own heart, after all the things that David did? And yet God looked at him and said, through you the Messiah shall come. I want to encourage you today. God has hope for you. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for your life. And no matter what you've done, it's done, it's not unredeemable. If you're in Christ, it's covered by the blood. And he wants to use you. He wants to use me in these last days. And I believe we are hurtling toward the last days. Let us be known as a people, as a church, of the love of Jesus Christ and the grace of God and the glory of the gospel. Not by what we're against, but by who we're for. Amen. Lord, we love you this morning. We bless your holy name as we come to this time at the table. We humble ourselves before you, God, and we acknowledge that were it not for your son Jesus and were it not for the blood shed for us, and had we not by your grace come to the place in life where we uh, were given the faith and the, the ability to see the, the spiritual sight, to be born again, and God, where would we be? But as we come to the table this morning, we recognize and we remember your goodness, your grace, your love, your mercy, so rich and free, so lavished upon us. And so as we prepare our hearts for this time to remember and receive, would you please just pour out blessing upon blessing on us this morning. And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, if we need to confess, then let this be a moment where we confess and we make things right with you that we might walk from here just again saying, Lord, thank you. Lord, we bless your name. So as we worship you now, Lord, receive this sacrifice of praise and prepare our hearts for coming to the table, the table of Jesus Christ. In his precious and holy name we pray, amen. So as we sing the song this morning, uh, throughout the course of the song, go ahead and grab your communion elements over there on the table and take your seat and then we will take of those together.